morning and comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. So here now for God's word on this new day. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only for what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with the seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here is our reading. Bitterness, there might have been some. 
Was there some anger that led to sin? You bet there was. And yes, the sun did go down on that anger. Did all of the words that came out of our mouths build each other up? That would be a hard no. There was definitely some slander and wrangling. There was lots of wrangling. I did mention there were 10 boys in this cottage, right? In short, we often fell short. So as much as I loved being there, I was also not entirely sorry when it came time for the trek back. The drive to Connecticut seemed endless, but as I pulled into our driveway, I felt a sense of relief. Home again. Home again from this other home. So this all got me thinking, what does it mean to be home? What, what makes something feel like home? Should it always feel good? Is it a place? Or is it the people in the place? Or is it a state of mind? Well, most of us would say that home is comfortable. It's known. It's that base of familiarity. It is the contrast point to all of the other places in our lives, the place we share with those who we love most tenderly and most intimately. And when we come home from a short trip or from our work day or from a long journey, we experience a letting go and an ease that any place out there can't match. At home, we can take off our masks, both literally and figuratively, and be ourselves. But home isn't perfect. There is the garden variety wrangling and conflicts that most of us experience. And then there are the deeper ways that some of us have been damaged by homes that were not safe havens at all. For some of us, our homes of origin were places of conflicted relationships and a lack of love. And we've had to rebuild what a healthy home feels like painstakingly over time. Of course, this business of home is not just about family and bricks and mortar and real estate. It's about our very selves. Because I think that being at home finally is a state of mind. And we then can wonder with whom we feel at home and what it means to be at home with ourselves and with others. In our culture, where, is, where there is always the lure of more, which can make us feel like less, it can be very difficult for us to feel at home with ourselves. It's hard for us to be content with the person God has made us to be and to be content with others when we're always feeling as if we should be more. Being at home begins with being at peace with ourselves.
but it is still more than that. I like what Diana Butler Bass writes in her book, Grounded. She says, the places we come to know as home involve an intangible flash of recognition, a soul connection that brings forth a different sort of knowing about God, nature, or one's self. Home is the place where God somehow meets us, where we belong. Home is the place where God somehow meets us. And in a sense, I think this is exactly what Paul is writing about today in today's text. Now at first glance, this text that we just read seems daunting. It feels like an impossible laundry list of model behaviors. Don't lie, tell the truth. Don't sin in your anger, rather set your heart on reconciliation. Don't steal, contribute to the greater good. Don't slander, build each other up with your kind words. Don't be bitter or full of wrath. Be kind and tender-hearted and merciful and quick to forgive. This feels impossible. Living in community is so difficult, whether it is a cottage of 19 people with one refrigerator or the church community in Ephesus. Paul knows this. He knows how difficult it is to live in community. So he's not prescribing a list of behaviors that we are meant to doggedly adhere to. Rather, he is describing an ideal. He is extending this invitation that we are invited to live and move in this world as if we are already free and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul is describing a new way of being in community. We are extended an invitation to leave behind an old home and an old way of life and live into a new kind of citizenship, a new homeland, if you will. And it's a home marked by our commitment to right relationship with one another, to honest speech, to generosity, kindness, and a determination to forgive as we have been forgiven. So Paul is saying that God has entered the ordinary and the everyday in order to make a home here among us. Not a home someday in some bloom yonder of the afterlife, but this day, this town, at this church, on these streets, in our homes, and in our most intimate relationships, at play and at work, and in everything we do. Here is what I realized as I drove back from Michigan to Connecticut. No matter how at home I feel somewhere, no matter how comfortable or loved I feel, something deep within me still longs for something that I can only describe as true home. Something elusive and indefinable. A kind of nameless 
nostalgia for some perfect home that I have never known and will never know and will never be able to offer others. It's a longing that no earthly place and no group of people, however beloved, can ever fill. And I imagine that deep within you, there is also this longing for true home. It is the place that God fills. Frederick Buechner, who I quote so often because I read so often, wrote this and it totally resonated with me. It is in Jesus and in the people whose lives have been touched by Jesus and in ourselves at those moments when we are also touched by him that we see another way of being human in this world, in which, which is the way of wholeness. When we glimpse that wholeness in others, we recognize it immediately for what it is. And the reason we recognize it, I believe, is that no matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry inside us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home, and that beckons to us. We carry inside us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home, and that beckons to us. Yes. Being at home with God may not be an easy thing. I know that for myself, it's sometimes hard for me to welcome God into my daily flow, even as I long to do so. Sometimes the windows are barred and the door is locked, and I wonder why God doesn't seem very present. And then I realize it is me who has put up the barriers and locked the entryways. And then, as the mystic Meister Eckhart says, it is we who have gone out for the walk. Of course, God is always present, for where else could God be but everywhere we are? One morning, two little fish went out for a swim, and they passed by an old, wise fish. The old, wise fish said to the two young fish, Morning, boys. How's the water today? The two little fish swam on for a while before one turned to the other and asked, What the heck is water? <laughs> we don't even realize that God is present everywhere. We don't even know the water we swim in. What must have happened for that old, wise fish <coughs> to learn about water? He was probably removed from it. The fastest way to learn about what is sacred is to be disconnected from it. The way we learn what true home feels like is when we learn what not home feels like. True home feels like gentleness and kindness and tender-heartedness and humility and forgiveness. 
true home feels like unconditional love. Something deep within us longs for home, which is perhaps just another way of saying that something deep within us Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to the debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. These are the words of our faith. this uncomfortable challenge. I'll begin with the word change, but I'd like you to take notice 
your relationship to the word fear, what's the first thing that comes up for you? Where does your thinking go when you hear this word? Let's just take a few moments, just sit back and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So the mission statement of Talmadge Hill is to know the love of God and share it. Now that simple sentence is one of several reasons that I was attracted to this community. Sixteen years later, I'm still dancing with its meaning. Objectively, I think I live most aspects of my life honoring the meaning of that simple sentence. And yet, there is this voice in my head asking, are you sure you understood it? This is not a voice that is telling me I've gotten something wrong, but I made a mistake. Well, it's a gentle voice. It invites me to be curious. It invites me to explore that moment. When I first heard the expression, decided what it meant, standing certainty, creating an unmovable understanding. But if that's true, I have set myself up for a conflict when the time comes to question that unmovable understanding. Because everything changes eventually. We can either resist it, or we can accept it. And acceptance requires trust. Resisting puts our denial into overdrive. The philosopher Schopenhauer says this, change is the only thing that can't be changed. So why do we resist change? Actually, there are some people who thrive on change. Drinking in uncertainty provides them uh, an adrenaline rush. Good for them. In psychology, the concept of resistance to change refers to people experiencing an emotional anxiety caused by the prospect of a transformation or change that is taking place. Early psychologists saw this as resistance as a motivational problem. Perhaps might be true in some small way, but they came to understand that many other factors are involved in resisting change, such as personality traits, life stories, resisting situations, an opportunity to look inside ourselves. We can feel motivated to change, but if something keeps us held back, like fear, motivation will not be enough to overcome resistance. Change is always an opportunity to discover oneself. But what's in a word? The word resistance. When I listen to someone responding to feedback and I have determined that they're resistant, a red flag goes up. And that moment of seeing that red flag invites me to reframe my thinking, the determination I have. So I change my judgmental determination from this person is resistant to this person is protecting something. Resist. 
That shift in perspective completely changes the dialogue. I'm no longer judging the resistance. I am now curious about the inner story of someone's protection. Now, Paul may have seen this and had this perspective as he moved from community to community on his mission to grow the ideology of the way, the way of Christ. Perhaps he brought his curiosity to these people who resisted change. They were possibly protecting something. They thought essential to their identity. Paul spent years with each community delivering not only the doctrinal essence of the way, but also provided much in the way of practical application to shift their thinking from old to new, shift their habits of culture. Paul addressed the unique challenges of each community, coaching each group's specific need to change. He did this in his epistles, his letters. Now, the believers in Ephesus were model followers. They seem to have taken to the way more readily than other communities. And yet, we have this letter from Paul. Be careful. Making the most of time. Making the most of time. What did Paul see that wasn't apparent to the Ephesians? Perhaps the believers in Ephesus had become comfortable in their understanding of the way. Like, oh yeah, Paul, we got this piece of cake. Hmm. One of the ten resistance-changing factors that psychologists emphasize is a lack of awareness that change is even necessary. So perhaps the Ephesians had found their comfort zone feeling relatively safe and comfortable in their understanding of the practices and workings of the way. Another factor psychologists offer is our attachment to habits. If we have done things one way for a long time, it will be quite challenging to change these models. They're not just habits of behavior, but they also are ways that we relate, think, feel. Our habits run fast through our brains, neural motorways. So change requires that we build new ways. And often when we are faced with that change, we tend to respond to it with minimal effort. Paul continues. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Hmm. What's that word? Debauchery is of a French origin from the 14th century, so I'm pretty sure that's not the original translation. With the original Greek translation, the line reads, do not get drunk with wine. For that is chaos. Do not get drunk with wine. For that is wild. And for me, that changes the impact of Paul's charge. 
Perhaps Paul sounded like this. I just want to tell you how proud I am of all of you, how well you have taken the way of Christ into your hearts. It must have been so difficult, such a process to embrace the change of belief. Can it be easy? I have brought you this gift of change. The change taught by Jesus. A change that moves through all other changes toward the everlasting. And yet, what I have witnessed is a kind of unconscious negotiation with this singular way of Jesus. I see in the way that you worship and follow this way of change that it has become occasional. And worse, perfunctory. It has evolved not as this, but as this. my relationship with change, the resistance or protecting. So many opportunities these days. Climate change, change from a normal society to a pandemic society. In the past 60 days, I have come face to face with a lot of change. Realizing the change, that my sister is no longer in his life. Realizing the change, Jackson is no longer in this life, sorry. My legs are so wobbly from this mountain of change that I'm actually having a difficult time with small elements of change. For instance, uh, getting a new refrigerator. I'm not serious. I'm like stupid side-by-side doors. <laughs> or my French doors. Yet while I know there is comfort in knowing that I am beloved by God, that the God inside me is my spiritual anchor that graces me with serenity, it's still a process to come home to change. A process that's really not unlike Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's theory of the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, Acceptance. Uh, that's about three sermons right there. So I'm going to change the subject. 
Let's talk about something else, something fun. Like fear. <laughs> so I asked you to notice yourself when I said the word fear earlier and what came up for you. I wanted you to have that experience so that I could share with what came up for me when I read one of the preaching topics from the lectionary, Psalm 34. It begins, O fear the Lord, you his holy ones. For those who fear him have no want. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Fear. What's in the word? For most of my life, I've understood this word to mean one thing, to be afraid of something. The fear of God, with that understanding, paints a picture that equates my fear of God with my fear of a bully. That leaves me with a relationship that is at best guarded and certainly at worst terrifying. I made the choice to reframe that relationship and set aside being afraid of God and all that came with a lifetime of dualistic thinking that invariably had me cursing my missteps with harsh self-judgment. Exploring a changing relationship with God, I embraced the truth that God exists within me as a pure point of light that is beyond all judgment. A place I call home. We are born with only two innate fears. The fear of loud noises and the fear of falling. After that, all other fears are learned. The fear of being alone, the fear of connecting, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of failure, the fear of success. All are identity fears that are learned. It's important to note that certain fears serve to keep us alive. But what about all the other fears that we subconsciously layer onto our way of being? How do they impact our spirits? What makes our journey with fear even more challenging is how our culture peddles fear. Fear is big business. It's monetized by our politicians in the form of votes. It's weaponized in the news cycles to sell more ad space. In marketing, it capitalizes on our fear of missing out on the next seemingly big thing. The word fear is everywhere. New phobias are being classified with sudden fear. This onslaught of manipulation is mind-numbing to me. Because we certainly don't need more fear. Perhaps we should just accept the fears that are within reach. Fear, the word fear can be useful. There are acronyms that I find quite useful as reminders for exploration, locating myself. Here are a few. False evidence appearing real. Forget everything and run. Face everything and recover. I came up with one for myself because I tend to worry. Futurized emotions aren't reliable. That's what I call worry. 
So I'm going to ask you to think of what came up for you when I said the word before. Notice it. Explore it. When I read Psalm 34 and saw fear peppered generously throughout, I looked up the definition for the word fear. And buried beneath all of the familiar definitions that were the foundation of my unmovable understanding, I found this. Fear, regard with feelings of reverence and respect, to be in awe of fear. Regard with feelings of respect and reverence, to be in awe of That shift of perspective, little moment, has graced me with the ability to come home to Scripture, to come home to faith. To come home to this little light of mine. So this is my invitation to all of you. Please come home to change. Please. This God of ours, please come home to reverence and awe. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Amen.